good morning. All right, you guys are almost awake. Let's try again. Good morning. All right, hello, Yates. My name is Mike Smith, and I have the honor and pleasure of bringing the sermon to you today. As you may have heard on the announcement portion before the service began, uh, Pastor Chris is working with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Thriving Congregations Initiative. And so what he's doing, he's, he's on retreat with a few churches, and he's coming alongside them and helping them live further into God's vision for who they can be. And so I'm also working with that initiative, and so that's my connection with Chris. Him knowing that he wasn't going to be here this morning invited me to come and offer the sermon, and in a few minutes, y'all will decide whether or not he was wise to do so or not. We'll see, okay? And so, as far as I understand it, you all are in the middle of a sermon series on the Trinity, and you're using hymns and songs as windows into different members of the Trinity. So, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and this week, we're looking at In Christ Alone, which we sang beautifully just a few moments ago. And as you might expect, we're focusing on the person of Christ. So we're going to be doing that, looking especially at Christ's relationship to believers and what that means for us in our lives. We're going to do that from Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and turn with me there. If not, that's fine. I'll read it to you anyway, so we'll be okay either way. And as you turn your Bibles there, I just want to introduce you to a younger version of myself. So if you look up here on the screen, that good-looking boy right there, that's me when I was like five or six years old. And I can't tell you how proud I am of this picture, because if you know anything about me, you know that when it gets cold, I like my sweaters. I'm actually wearing my Costco special sweater today because it almost got cold outside, all right? So even back when I was a little kid, sweaters were making appearances, all right? So that's me when I was a little kid. Let's put the next one up. All right, so this right here, this is my wife when she was a little kid. And yes, she is indeed adorable. And here's what you need to know about these two kids. I mean, you just look, them out, look at them on paper, there's nothing that indicates that they would end up getting together and getting married. They had very different stories. And so I was born in Texas. She was born in New Mexico. I moved all around when I was a kid. We followed my dad's promotions and lived in places like two to four years at most. She lived in the same city for her entire life until she left for college. When she was in high school, she was a star student. She was the valedictorian of her class. She was winning science fairs. When I was in high school, I was a slacker, all right? And so we've kind of got this thing where we've got these two very different stories. On paper, you wouldn't see them coming together, but go ahead and put up the next one. In college, we met. We started to date, and we ended up getting married, which, of course, begs the important question, how did Sweater Boy end up with Miss Universe? Am I right? Yeah, you would not be the first to ask that question. I actually find that people like me pretty well until they meet my wife. And then whatever good they saw in me begins to pale in comparison to her glowing glory. So any husbands out there understand what I'm talking about today? Yeah, that's kind of how it works, isn't it? Actually, when I was working in my first church, I was just walking through the lobby and Miss Doris was the kindest elderly woman that you could ever meet. And she was staffing the uh, front desk that day. 
and she was answering phones, welcoming people into the church, and I was just walking by, minding my own business, and she just had a thought that came to her head, and she said without any malice, just kind of speaking as it came to her mind, you know, Mike, I can't for the life of me imagine why you would deserve a girl like Emily. And so this has been, I mean, you're not the only ones to ask this. I can only say that it is the grace of God, okay? So why do I put this before you today? You can go ahead and take it down now. Beyond showing you that I married up, which I did, it's just to show you that we have this already understanding of the idea of two stories that are separate, that can come together, and they can move forward. My wife and I have now been married for uh, 20 years this year. We have a 15-year-old daughter who was kind enough to come to me, come with me this morning, and I'm embarrassing her right now. Hey, Bella. So, uh, yeah. And so we are these two different stories. We came and chose to bind our lives together, and now we've had one story moving forward. So go ahead and keep that in the back of your mind as we begin to move through the passage of Scripture this morning. As I said, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, but before we get to chapter 2, I want to tell you a little bit of what's going on in chapter 1, kind of tee up what Paul is doing in chapter 2. So in chapter 1, the second half, he says, you know what? I'm praying for you guys. He's talking to a group of people who live in a city called Ephesus. He says, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying some specific things for you. Number one, I'm praying that you would know God better. Because I'm praying that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened so you will know the hope that you have in Christ. And then he says, and I'm praying that you would know the power that is at work for us who believe. And that power piece is where we want to pick up today. So in chapter 1, the second half of verse 19, Paul says this, Speaking of that power that is at work in believers, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So he says there's a power that is available to believers. And it's not just a generic power. This is the power that was at work in the story of Jesus when he was raised from the dead. And so he tells us that chapter of Jesus' story. Now, Jesus' story, of course, is bigger than that. Jesus is God the Son from all eternity. Through him and for him, all things were made. He's the very word of God who walked among us. He's the Messiah of Israel. He's the Savior of the world. He's the one who confronted the rebellious powers of this world when he carried our sin to the cross. And this is where Paul picks up that story. You see, Christ was dead and buried after that cross, but the scriptures tell us that the grave could not hold him. And God worked a mighty act and raised him up from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority. If you want to talk about this chapter of Jesus' story that Paul is referencing here, it is a chapter of glory. He has been raised. He has been seated. Okay, so we begin here with this glorious story of Jesus, but we come to chapter 2, and Paul takes a hard right turn. 
And no longer are we talking about a story of glory. We're talking about something much more bleak because now we're not talking about Christ's story anymore. We're talking about our story. In particular, we're talking about our story before we knew Christ. So read this with me, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. This is the story that he tells about us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. All right, so he starts to tell the story of humanity apart from Christ, apart from God, and it's a pretty bleak story. Did you catch what he said there? He said, number one, you were dead in your transgressions. You had gone astray. You are a sinner who was spiritually dead to the maker of the universe. That was kind of like our constant state. But then that constant state was filled with activity that wasn't necessarily pleasing to God. He says you were dead in your transgressions and you also followed the ways of this world. When Paul talks about the world right here, he's not talking about the world in general. He's talking about those aspects of the world that veer away from God. Those aspects of the world that sometimes stand directly opposed to God. He says you were dead in your transgressions and you were caught up in these worldly ways that turn their back on God. Not just that, you also followed the ways of, let me see if I can say this right, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is basically a fancy way of talking about the devil. All right, not only were you dead in your transgressions, not only were you caught up in these ways of the world that are turning away from God, there's also a force at work in this world that is opposed to God, and you were caught up in his web. So you were dead in your transgressions, you followed the ways of the world, you were caught up in the devil's web, and then beyond that, you, that looked in part like this. It meant that you gratified the desires of your flesh. In part, that means to be caught up in the ways of this world, and that web means that we make ourselves into little gods, and we can't see beyond some of those crooked parts of ourselves, and we just live into that. And then all of this leads to the verdict, and you were, like the rest, deserving of wrath. New Testament scholars talk about Paul's pessimistic view of humanity. Can you tell why from this passage right here? It's a pretty bleak story, right? And we want to be careful with passages like this because if you just read this straight, it sure sounds like the world outside the church is only a horrible place, right? That's not really the case. We know there's good outside the church. We know that there's not so good things inside the church if you've been here for a while, okay? We might say it like this, from God's eye view... There's both a yes and a no to the world. And God can affirm those things that match God's character. God can affirm those things that live into God's peace. And God can say no to those things that are unjust, 
God can say no to those things that don't live up to his calling for this world, that don't live up to his peace. And so as Paul tells the story, he doesn't tell us about the yes. Instead, he just accentuates the no because he wants us to feel the weight of that judgment. And if we're going to end our story right there, it's a pretty bleak thing. But the passage goes on in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Now, a more literal translation right there would just be to say, but God, who is rich in mercy. You may have heard pastors and teachers wax eloquent on those two words, right? Because if we stop in verse 3, we have no hope. But God doesn't leave us in verse 3. He takes us into the rest of the chapter. But God chooses not to abandon his creation. Instead, God decides to redeem that creation. But God, because of his great love for us, this God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. But God has chosen to reach out to a fallen world in Christ. And notice what he's done. It says that God has reached down to us, and God has raised us up, and God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. Where have we heard those two words before? Raised up and seated. Back in chapter 1, right? It's almost like we have a merging of stories. Now, it's important to realize here that this isn't the same thing that I did earlier. It's not like two stories meet in college and go forward like they were basically equal. This is the story of a desperate and fallen world meeting the story of a good and loving God. And when that world meets this God, something absolutely amazing happens. We might put it like this. God catches us up into Christ's story. So God chose not to abandon a fallen world. Instead, God chose to redeem that world in Christ, to reach out to us in Christ. And so when the time was right, God the Son took on human flesh, very God and very humanity. And Jesus walked among us and was like us in every way except for one. Whereas we fail and, and go astray, Jesus was perfectly faithful. Jesus entered our story and he followed it to its end 
when he died on a cross. That's where our story ends. But because of who he is, his story doesn't end there. It goes on. So he comes into our story, takes it to its ending place, and extends it, and then he catches us up into his story. And so we find ourselves in Christ. And it is a good place to be. So what does this actually mean for us? Okay, we've talked about stories, and we get it. Christ came into our story, pulls us into his story. Why does this actually matter? I'll tell you why I think it matters. I think that it actually informs the way we live our lives if we can get that information from up here to down here. So think with me for a moment what it means if we begin to know in our bones that we are in Christ, that we are safe in Christ's story. I'm going to put forward that there are two things that happen to us, if that's the case. Number one, we might rest. We might rest secure. So we've sung in Christ alone. Beautiful song, beautiful lyrics. I don't know if you noticed there, but the second and third verse is basically just telling Christ's story and telling us how that story covers us. And then in verse 4, we hear these words, and I want you to listen for the notes of security. I want you to listen for the notes of rest. What can we say when we know what Christ has done for us? No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no human hand can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Do you hear the security in those words? The New Testament talks about it in some different ways. Colossians says that we are hid in Christ. First Peter says that we're shielded by the power of God until the second coming. But the idea here is that if you are in Christ, that you are safe and secure. Now that does not mean that everything in your life is suddenly going to go just swimmingly. Our experience tells us that's just not the case. And so we need to be careful how we understand this. So if I say this, y'all finish it for me, the safest place to be is the center of... Oh, y'all don't know that one. I do. God's will is what people will say. But actually, sometimes that's not the case. Because sometimes when we choose to be faithful to God, things get more difficult. Ask the people who have suffered for their faith. So this doesn't mean that suddenly everything just works out in life. What it means is that in that deep, deep place, the place that matters most, we are anchored in Jesus. We are secure, and nothing can take that away from us. Have you ever met those people that they're going through a storm in life, and yet it seems like they have a calm center? Miss Eileen was like that 
for me. I pastored her several years ago. She got a stage four cancer diagnosis. She passed away within the year, and yet she navigated that time with such grace, with such poise. You might say that she was at rest even when the world was upside down. I think it's because she knew this in her bones. The world may be upside down, but Jesus commands my destiny. The world may be upside down, but I am hidden in Christ. The world may be upside down, but I am raised with Christ. I am seated with Christ, and nothing can shake that foundation. If we could get that in our bones, we might rest a little bit more. So that's number one, we might rest. Number two, I'd say maybe we might walk which might sound a little bit strange because you don't really walk when you're resting, right? Maybe it's an active kind of rest. Because you see, when we are hidden in Christ, we are secure. But then God does a work in our lives. So read with me in verse Uh, starting in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Remember that but God part earlier? Paul's saying, but God, this is not you. This is God's grace. And then he goes on, he says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So one part of this means that you are secure. You can rest in what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. You can rest in Christ's story. It also means that God is doing a work in your life. You are a new creation in Christ. And the picture here is that God is a master artisan and you are his work of art. And God is forming you and making you into a new person to inhabit this world in new ways. We might say that he's making you like Christ. So when we are caught up into Christ's story, we are secure there. We are safe in that space. But we are also created anew in Christ. And God imparts to us the Holy Spirit who does a work in our lives. And the story of Christ begins to shape our stories as we become more and more and more the people whom God has called us to be. Which can sound a little bit scary. It sounds like holier than thou. But I want you to think about the Christian that you know who you just like the most (laughs) because they're kind and they know how to laugh and they're gracious to you. That's what we're talking about right here. We're not talking about holier-than-thou Pharisees. We're talking about people who are like Jesus and inhabit this world in just and merciful and beautiful ways. So we have been caught up into Christ's story which means we can rest come hell or high water. And it means that we can walk in this new way of life that God has prepared for us.
So what's the invitation? I could come out and say, well, just try harder to get it from here to here. Get it deep in your bones so you understand it. That's really not how this works, is it? We saw in this passage where Paul is just saying over and over, it's not by works. It's the grace of God that has done this in your life. And yes, we agree with the grace of God, but we move forward not by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but we move forward with the grace of God as God ministers to us. And so if there's any part in this sermon this morning where you kind of go, I'm latching onto that and I'm not sure what to do with it, well, maybe the key this morning is just to sit with that before God. I really enjoyed how y'all do your morning prayer where you're not afraid to sit in some silence. What I'd like to do is just, if there's anything that has really reached out to you and grabbed your attention, I just want to ask you for the next few moments, we're just going to be quiet for a few minutes. Maybe not, maybe not a few minutes, that might be long, right? We're going to be quiet for a little bit, okay? I'm just going to give you a moment to hold that before God. Do you need to rest because you know in your bones what Christ has done? Do you need to walk because you realize that you are a new creation in Christ? Do you just need for God to help you get it from here to here? Let's just take a few moments not trying to do better, but asking God for God's grace. Asking God to do the work that only God can do. Would you bow your heads with me? Just and merciful and loving God, we thank you that you did not leave a broken world, but instead you chose to redeem it. And Father, we thank you that we are your redeemed people. We ask that in the next few moments you would draw near to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would bless us with your presence. Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we might know you more, that we might rest in your hope, that we might walk in your power. 